Hi, I'm Ben Kitai, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, welcome to another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Who's on the show today? Hey, uh, we have actually a really good friend of mine, Ben Kitai. Alana reached out to me and she said, hey, how'd you like to talk to Ben Kitai, the guy who directed the new River Wild? Whoa. And, I, and I'm like, I know Ben Kitai. I worked for him the first time I ever did second unit was on a show he created called Chosen. And I know I've talked about it on here before. It was made for Crackle. First unit director was a fella named Toby Wilkins. Mm -hmm. And uh, Toby reached out to me and said, hey, would it be insulting for me to ask you if you would do second unit? And it was the middle of December. And uh, a lot of production goes on in the middle of December. Exactly. It was <laughs> like, it, you know, if you want to get me to do pretty much anything, offer to me mid-December and I'll be like, all right, yeah, I'm, I'm there. But it was a super fun show. And Ben created the show. He wrote the show and he was kind of there overseeing the show. We talk a little bit about that. Uh, but Ben wrote and directed the new, uh, it, it's not really a remake of the River Wild, the Curtis Hansen movie from... Yeah, I saw it. I yeah. saw it in the theater, actually. Yeah. yeah, from the 90s, starring Meryl Streep and Kevin Bacon. So, And Ben talks about this a little bit, but it's not really a remake. They just owned the IP, and so they had people pitching new new takes on it, and he pitched his take, and they made it, and it's on Netflix. Cool. When I saw it, it was, it was like uh, two days before it came out, and I had to go through the whole weird rigmarole to watch a, an online screener. And then like I was like, is this coming out in theaters? Or I asked him, and he was like, nope, it's on Netflix right now. And I'm like, okay, well, I could have just done that, but whatevs. Well, uh, for our listeners who don't understand what that is, you kind of have to go through a whole process to make sure and signify you are who you say you are, and you're not going to do anything nefarious with the intellectual property of- Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. they want to make sure that you can't download it or pirate it or, you know, whatever. Two days before it's about to have its, yeah, yeah, its wide release. Two days before it's literally anyone on the planet could, could watch it. But uh, definitely, uh, if you're listening to this, check out The River Wild. He also had a show called Startup that originated on Crackle hmm. and ended up moving to Netflix and had a huge run on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on Netflix, but it's an awesome show. Shot in Puerto Rico and uh, stars Ron Perlman. Mm. And uh, Ben's a super talented guy. You know, you'll get from the interview, he's a humble guy. But when I worked with him on Chosen, he had already made a couple of features, I think. He had made at least one feature, which he talks about, the sequel to 30 Days of Night mm. for Sam Raimi. And he had created a show and he was on his way to create Startup. And he was like in his early 30s. And I was like, fetus. <laughs> 30 Days of Night. Wasn't that a vampire movie? It was, yeah. So his first movie was uh, was a sequel to that. Oh, right on. And now, Close Focus. Ben, we should probably talk about the biggest news that's happened in a bit here for mm -hmm. our Close Focus. I mean, what else is there to talk about? Although I'm sure everyone is going to talk about this. But, you know, because our press time is so close to this event, I feel like uh, we, we just got to talk about it. It's, it's just literally happened uh, minutes ago. Yeah. The AMPTP and the Writers Guild have reached a tentative agreement. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, by the way, like uh, my social media is like blowing up and everyone's the strike's over. And I'm like, OK, let's take a breath. 
So take uh, a moment. That's so not that's not true. As we're recording this, which is Sunday night, tomorrow is Yom Kippur, mm-hmm. the Jewish Day of Atonement, which shuts down this town. And Tuesday, the town's going to still be a little bit shut down for the Jewish holiday. And so I don't expect to even see what the terms of this new deal are until Wednesday at the absolute earliest. But the important thing to remember is, you know, like I, I feel pretty confident with what I'm saying and I'll be happy to eat these words if I'm wrong, but it's like they have to ratify, they have to put it and then it has to go to a vote of the, of the guild. That's right. So the writer's guild could reject uh, whatever the offer is. If the offer is crappy, I feel like the writer's guild is pretty weaponized right now. I, I would agree. I would say that if they don't like the agreement, there's a good chance it's going to get shot down. And who knows what that will mean? Because yeah, it's already end of September now. And uh, this town really, really goes quiet by Thanksgiving. Oh yeah. And uh, But this is going to be different. I mean, if, if the strike is over, yeah. I feel like our town is going to be hopping right, right down to the wire. It could. Because we still have a SAG strike going That's true. on, but we have like basically full seasons of some shows and half seasons of some shows that are just not written, and they're going to want to get writing double time, and they're going to they're going to be pedal to the metal to get that stuff written in the hopes that the SAG strike gets settled by early next year or end of this year, and they can start shooting new episodes. Let's assume that it is a good deal. It does get ratified. It does move forward. Do you think that the actors? Uh, are going to be satisfied with a similar sort of deal because now there's a precedent that's set? Or do you think that they're going to feel emboldened to try to get get more? What, what does your crystal ball tell you about the actors and all well, this? Well, this town is freaking exhausted by the strike. And, you know, basically we've been shut down for about four months. More. Uh, yeah. um, and I think that there's probably a strong urge to get it over with so that we can start working again. But if the Writers Guild deal doesn't outline specifically what AI is in a clear enough way that SAG could change the language a little bit to cover actors rather than writers and get equal or better coverage. I think that's a bigger sticking point to them than transparency in streaming numbers and residuals because you know that they're going to get better deals on that, but they're not going to ever create... I will be so shocked if uh, the AMPTP companies decide to give full transparency on streaming numbers. That's just not something they want to do. They're going to have to give some numbers if they start having advertising. Oh, yeah. So, you know, they may not want to, but if Netflix's, you know, threats to introduce advertising are true. Well, it's no threat. They're doing it. I mean, like all in, in Disney Plus, like they're all supposedly going to a hybrid model, kind of like Hulu, where you can pay one tier and have no advertising, but on certain tiers, lower, lower paying tiers, you'll have ads. Well, if that's true, the advertisers are going to demand, you know, some information to make oh, sure yeah. that their their money is going in the right place. And, so. and I know I've said this a hundred times here, but it's like they can tell you everything about the demographics of everyone watching the show. They can say this show has, you know, five million women between the ages of 17 and 35, and they can tell you how much of it they watch. They can tell you everything about them. They can tell you how many of them are multiple cat owners. Yeah. <laughs> so No, exactly. How many people whose favorite color is chartreuse so uh anyway well burnt umber that's that's my favorite color so so i think that that sometimes burnt sienna (laughs) burnt sienna you've really gone for all the crayola colors right now so for sure uh 
Okay, well, I know that I don't want to belabor this, and I know there's going to be a lot of people talking belabor. about it. Belabor, I see. I get your joke. Ha ha. Uh, but here's the, here's my point. My my point is that we should probably get to the interview because otherwise, you know, we're just talking about nothing. We don't know what's going to happen, and we'll have a whole lot more to talk about next week. Oh boy, will we ever? Well, here we go with Ben Kitai. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. It's a little unusual. I've I've had some people on the show here before who I've worked with, but I've uh, I think you're the first one I've ever worked for. Really excited to have you on the show. So Ben Kitai, creator of several TV series, including Chosen, which I've talked about on the show before, and Startup, and uh, you've directed several movies. You have a new movie right now that just dropped on Netflix a few weeks ago, I think, that is... Not exactly a remake of River Wild, but shares the title with The River Wild, which was a 90s movie with Kevin Bacon and Meryl Streep. Like, what is the connective tissue between the two? The joy for me was because I I didn't want to. I'm not a big fan of trying to tackle a lower budget sequel to a big budget movie (laughs) and and trying to recreate exactly what they did. I I actually did that my first movie in my career, and that was a big mistake. Uh, (laughs) We'll get into that. Talk about learning experiences. But so here I am again with an opportunity to take something that's, uh, you know, a a piece of IP, something that a movie that people used to or still do love and cherish. I still do, you know, going back and rewatching, I was like, man, this movie holds up. It's just such a fun 90s thriller, the the kind that just don't make anymore. Curtis Hansen, man, he's he that was like right before he made L.A. Confidential. Right. Wasn't that he was just such a role, man. Rest in peace. But but yeah, I loved I, I loved what he did with that movie. And I and I said, I just love the concept of being trapped on a river because I hate water, ironically. You do? Uh, yeah. So this whole thing was kind of my nightmare. I don't know why I decided to do this movie. But, <laughs> but what was fun for me about it was that we did have, you know, it was going to be a lower budget. It wasn't going to, we weren't going to have the resources. And they came to me and said, we, we want to do a movie. And it, the only thing that has to be the same is the title. And it has to take place on a river and it has to be a thriller. And I said, cool, I, I have a story that could be told in a forest. It could be told in a coffee shop. It could be, you know, it, mm-hmm. a, a personal story about human beings, which is what I thought the first one did so well. It brought this personal family story into it and this story of masculinity and trust and things like that. And so I had a different story and I said, all right, it's, it's going to be a completely different story, completely different characters, but it's set on a river. And I'd say the only similarity really, which is just sort of by the nature of the beast is really that they're trying to use the river, the bad guy's trying to use the river to get somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but in this movie, we decided to make it much more that the the threat, the villain comes from within the raft. Whereas in the first movie, the raft gets hijacked by some bad guys on the shore, as we know, Kevin Bacon yeah, and John C. Riley, brilliant casting. And in this, it's more of a personal story. It's, you know, people who know each other and turn against one another. And I found that really compelling and also just an opportunity to intentionally make it a little more contained, a little smaller, you know what I mean? In a good way, in a character driven way. So that was really exciting. But ultimately, the only thing, the only the only mandate from the studio was the title and the setting. You had told me offline the rough schedule, like how many days you had to shoot in, about how much money you had to shoot with. And usually we don't kind of get into that. But I feel like, you know, when I was watching this movie, I was 
literally just I, I was I think I was texting you while I was watching it. I was on the edge of my seat. Like it's so suspenseful and it's contained, but it doesn't feel artificially contained. And like it doesn't have what I would say would be like the hallmarks of feeling like a low budget movie. You know, I mean, there are movies like Cocaine Bear that t- kind of take place in a restrained setting as well. Like it felt like that kind of movie. So h- how many days did you have to, to shoot this? Because it really doesn't feel restrained. It, it has so much cool scope to it. Yeah, we didn't have the resources that the first movie had. We we only had 25 days to shoot the entire thing. What? Yeah. And as you know, as a filmmaker yourself, uh, water takes like four times as long. You know, it's, it's, yeah. kids, it's kids, dogs, and water. Water being the worst. <laughs> Everything moves slower on water. But the plan going in just to writing the script was making sure that the water sequences were awesome, but were not a huge percentage of or a huge fraction of the script itself. The rest of it would be shot in the woods with mostly available light and great actors. And that stuff, although I would prefer to have more days to do that kind of stuff, we can accomplish it rather quickly when we know what we're doing. And I had such a great cast who came in so prepared. We spent weeks before the shoot just really kind of going through the script and talking about what every scene was and doing all of that legwork before we actually got to set so that no time was wasted. And we used every single minute that we possibly could came up with, you know, a really efficient coverage strategy for every scene. And yeah, I'm actually really proud of what we managed to squeeze from that stone, the blood, the blood that we, <laughs> we squeezed from that stone. No, and I thought I I was hoping that uh, it was going to be a theatrical release. I think it it probably would have done you know some business. These kinds of movies, when you think about movies like Smile or Megan or yeah. um, Talk to Me, that you know like movies that are genre that are tight and tense like this that have been really finding an audience lately. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was kind of bummed when when we finished it. I'll be honest, I wasn't. I'm I'm totally on board with the. I'm not like a cinephile purist. Um, mm-hmm. I love good stories and. That's all I really care about. That's not all I care about, obviously, but like that <laughs> first and foremost for me. So if so if this whole streaming era and people watching big new releases at home on their nice TVs gets more people to watch more stories and gives us filmmakers the opportunity to make more stories, I'm all for it. Um, when we finished the movie and we mixed the film on a big soundstage with a big, beautiful 4K screen, mm. uh, I was feeling like, ah, oh, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> It's not going to be in the theaters, you know, but that's the business model for releasing a movie these days is is also kind of perilous, you know, and sometimes it is. There's something kind of cooler, actually, about just like leaking it out on Netflix with like no marketing or anything and letting the algorithm do its job. And hell, we were uh, we crept up to number three on the charts, I think, by the second week we were on. And then we were we stayed in the top 10 for almost a month. Oh, wow. Um, so it found its audience very quickly and it, it had legs and it was the third most watched feature on Netflix in August. So I was proud of that, you know, whereas if you release a movie in the theaters that, you know, is uh, of a smaller budget and the studio is not going to put obviously tens of millions of dollars marketing it, your movie's going to open and it's yeah. going to have a, a box office number next to it. And that is what determines whether or not your movie was a failure or, or a success, you know, and yeah. that is a really nasty aspect of our industry because, you know, it's, it takes a whole big machine and lots and lots of money to usually make a movie of that scope or of what we were trying to go for. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we had, we had very little resources and very little marketing money behind it. 
Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I, I feel like maybe I spend too much time railing about it. So it's interesting to hear your different point of view, you know, because to me, it's like, uh, like recently I watched They Clone Tyrone on Netflix. And it's a movie that I was recently corrected that it did have a small theatrical window. It Netflix did release it in theaters, but it's got like John Boyega and Jamie Foxx. And it's, it feels like a movie that you'd see in the theaters. And it just sort of, they just kind of like, put it on Netflix and I guess, you know, maybe, maybe it's the algorithm doing its thing, but like, how does that impact you? Like, so the algorithm is basically just Netflix is looking at anyone who's watched any movie that would point to your movie on some level. And then it's suggesting your movie to them, right? Yeah. It suggests the movie and then the more, and then it's sort of, uh, from what I've come to understand, it sort of becomes this kind of exponential growth. So the more people that engage in it, the more it disseminates it to other Mm. people with similar profiles. When my show Startup got picked up by Netflix, same thing happened. It it seemed to, it felt like it was a great show to be on Netflix because it had such a wide reach as far as demographic, you know, so many different cultures and ages and interests uh, involved in that show. And that I think really showed up in the algorithm, you know, which is why Mm. that that one charted for a good month as well. So let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of the visual construction of the movie. So just a little bit of background about, uh, you know, because I, I've worked for you. I did second unit on season three of Chosen, which is a show you co-created and you directed the first two seasons of. And there is a real naturalism to the way you like to work. And The River Wild is an extremely naturalistic film. Like you said, you were working with natural light to a degree and it's mostly handheld. Talk a little bit about kind of your aesthetic and where that comes from. And like, I think it's really specific to your work. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you recognizing that. And, uh, and of course, yeah, you, you, you got it. <laughs> you saw it firsthand when we worked together over a decade ago. Yeah. I actually have my, I, I have these chosen posters that I, I keep. see them right behind. Yeah. I didn't, I actually didn't put those up for you. I wish I could, I could say that I did. I, I keep those up in plain sight because that just to remind myself that that was the most fun I've ever had working on a show. And it's so because- much fun. Yeah, it's so much fun and it's the least amount of resources I've ever had. And I, I think part of my style, it's two things. I, I love when I'm swept away into a movie and when a director can create a world using lots of money and lots of toys and visual effects and and suck me away into that world. For me, though, when I step into a project, I have to experience it as a filmmaker and a storyteller from the inside out, from the inside of, a, of the human brain, from the inside of each character, I want to be in their head. I don't want to be standing far away watching things unfold the way you would be on a stage, you know? So there's always been that desire for me ever since I was a kid with my dad's video camera. I think I just, you know, part of it was you don't have a tripod when you're a kid. You just have a home video camera yeah. and you're around with your friends and you're like, oh, this is a cool way to move the camera. And then, uh, you know, I, I haven't had a opportunity to make one of those big budget movies with all the toys. Uh, and so, you know, shooting handheld and shooting kind of run and gun and shooting in a very improvisational way kind of gives you options that feel very natural and the way that I like it instead of having to manufacture things. So in, a, in an ironic way, like having less money sometimes allows me to do what I like the most, which is yeah. run and gun, you know, and, there, and we make we make mistakes and we keep them, you know, if camera will go out of focus. We keep it. an actor trips over their lines, but keeps going. That's how people talk. You know, it's um, I'm not saying it's mumblecore at all, but like, <laughs> you know, it's like I, I kind of I like the idea of this imperfection being very human. And then everything around it, of course, you know, we design the sets and the wardrobes and things to feel 
aesthetically pleasing. And we pick, we choose glass and we choose cameras that we want to obviously look professional. So people don't go, what's this cheap piece of shit, you know, but like <laughs> the mandate on, on everything I've ever done, especially river wild is like, does this look real? Do, you know, does this look like that? That shirt looks like it just fell off the wardrobe truck, go run it through the dirt and, you know, <laughs> you know, mess it up. <laughs> I will say that the crew in Hungary, they, they all, did such a wonderful job. They like really knew the craft of like with, with hair and makeup and wardrobe and everything. I had never worked with people that embraced grit so much, you know? Oh, really? Yeah. It was just like sort of embracing like things, like really paying attention to the details of like, if does this look like movie makeup or does this look like somebody who isn't wearing makeup, you know? And the latter is what I'm always going for. I've, you know, I've sent people back to the makeup trailer before because they look too done up. It's, uh, I want that realism. So that's, that's just me. That's just who I am. Yeah. I remember you, I uh, probably, uh, well, we're going to definitely talk about chosen, but I remember on chosen at one point you said to me, large, large sensor cameras enabled that show to be made because you didn't have the budget to dress the background. So it just, as long as it could go way out of focus, yeah. you, you could live with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Using shallow focus, fast lenses. We, if we used, we somehow, <laughs> I remember in season one, we somehow like swindled our way into getting a set of master primes, which for those who don't know, is like the most, ex- one of the most expensive sets of digital lenses that you could rent in town. Um, well, anyway, I mean, that, that was one of my first actual projects with any sort of budget or with any sort of, even though it was next to nothing. You know, if you remember, we shot the entire series in like 22 days or something like that. So six 30 minute episodes It was basically like shooting a three hour indie feature yeah. in 22 days. And then we chopped it up into episodes. I feel like we had more because I was on season three. I feel like you had more days, but it wasn't much more days. It might have been. Yeah. After after season one did really well for Crackle, they um, they ponied up a little more budget for season two and three. But that experience, I really learned massively from that experience because it was like we had good glass, a great camera and a young hustling, like, like a crew that was excited to be there. Your TP, Tim Burton, who's his actual name is Tim Burton. Actual Uh, name, Tim Burton. uh, Yeah. He's, I thought his work was amazing. He's amazing, man. And I've worked with him. I mean, on pretty much everything else I've done since, uh, because we just, we work well together that way. He knows how to make things look beautiful and real at the same time. And we move fast. We squeeze all that blood from the stone, man. It's it's just, it's a lovely way to work. I, I think, you know, there's been, there's been projects, a few projects I've done where I did have a slightly larger budget with more toys and I got a little bored, not going to lie. Like I kind of like the, I kind of <laughs> like the urgency. I like the, I like feeling like I'm at war sometimes, but in a fun way, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the challenge keeps you on your toes. It forces you to be creative and think of things that you hadn't thought of. And so, you know, chosen really taught me that. And that's why it really was the most fun I've ever had. Like it was a real turning point for me. It was a real couple of years of self-discovery, I think. Another reason why Chosen 10 years ago was such a formative experience for me was because I got to make, you know, I had a long leash to make mistakes. Um, the, the joy of doing something that doesn't have a lot of money behind it is also you don't have a lot of people standing behind you. Yeah. <laughs> so you can make mistakes and you can try things and you can experiment. And I really used it as sort of a recalibration of the way I wanted to make movies or make TV shows. And what I had been doing up to that point was feeling like, I, I'm such a, I like to prepare really well. I'm a control freak. Obviously, I mean, all of us directors are, right? <laughs> you know, that's why we do it. And so I would like storyboard every single frame of every scene, even if it's like two people 
eating pizza in a chair, <laughs> you know, because I was like, I wanted to play around with the way it felt if we were close or if we're here or if we're, you know, all that. And I realized that if I came in with that plan for scenes that were dialogue heavy or performance heavy, it really hindered everybody else's process. And when I got to start working with great actors like Milo yeah. and like Chad, and then lucky enough to obviously, as I moved into startup and working with Martin Freeman and Ron Perlman, Ron Perlman and Adam Brody and Eddie Gasteggi. And it really, they taught me so much about their process that I realized like, this is going to go much better if I just let you figure it out. Like my whole thing with blocking now is like, here's the set. I might have a couple shots in my head that I really, I'm like, it, it would look awesome if you were standing in front of this window. So if we can incorporate that, I would love that. Let's see if we can work towards that, but like, go for it. Like what, what would happen? You know? And like, and I noticed that the, the performances I was getting out of my actors just got better and better and better, the more freedom I gave them. And of course, then I would give them notes and adjustments and say, do that. But if you step to your left here, it's going to look way cooler. Okay. You just got to be honest with them about that. Right. But if you've already given them the freedom to like own the space and then you block the camera around that. Do you ever, do you ever get pushback on that? If you say, Hey, if you stepped over here, it would look cool. Do you ever get like, yeah, but I don't feel like it. And then you, yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. For sure. And, and I went through a period in my career where I would just lie and like try to come up with some bullshit and be like, well, uh, you know, this, this counter has significance in season three or whatever. Like, you know, it was like, I'd be scrambling for like, Oh fuck, how do I get them? To... But then I it really very quickly, I was like, the actors are so intuitive and so driven by just their own human nature. That's like, you have to give them, you have to allow them to be themselves or inspire them to be something even better or even more creative that's the wonderful relationship that you have when you're a director working with great smart actors and so it's really just being straight up and be like please can we figure out a way to get you <laughs> you know and if not then you, you know most of the time like i will always choose performance you know like they say happy wife happy life as a happy actor happy movie <laughs> you know yeah. like because and also it's going to show on screen i i would rather have a movie that looks like shit but has great performances than the other way around. Uh, always, 100% of the time. You know, I follow their lead and I abandon any sort of plan that I had if it doesn't work for them. Except, and this is the agreement that we make before we start shooting anything. This is the agreement I make with all of my actors in prep. And they know this just because they're professionals and they've been through it. If there's a stunt sequence, they know like this is going to need, <laughs> this needs to be storyboarded. You know, like we yeah. can't, we can't change your mind all of a sudden about like what you would do if we've already spent three weeks planning on how this raft is going to go over this giant waterfall and one person is going to fall out and the other person is going to hang on. You know, it's like, we're not changing that on the day, you know, that, so, you know, there's days where it's like today is do what you do, you react to the water, make the noises, make the movements and everything. Let me and the DP and the crew do the rest and the stunties, obviously. And, you know, you pick your days, you pick your days to have those days, uh, you know, secretly it's, it's the days where it just, it feels like you're on set and it just feels like family, you you know, with you and the, and the cast and the crew around you. And you, you got, you, everybody gets to make decisions together. You know, that, that became the real joy of directing for me and something I'm, I'm kind of addicted to now. So when when you're doing scenes like the the more uh, suspenseful stunt driven scenes in, in a movie like that, as I was watching it, I'm, I'm watching. You know, it's like if you have someone 
falling off a building or something. I know how you make that safe. I don't, for the life of me, know how you make falling into a whitewater rapid safe for anyone. That seems horrifying. Like, what kind of precautions did you have to take around some of those sequences? Yeah, well, it was Eastern Europe, so there is not as litigious of a society. Um, we only lost three people. I'm, I'm just kidding. We didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. We they actually their their stunt team there was amazing. Our stunt coordinator was extraordinarily cautious and smart about and and would you know the same way I was talking about like when you don't have the right resources sometimes it creates other creative ideas. He actually came up with a lot of cool ideas based on like I've decided this isn't going to be safe because of the water levels today but what if we did this and sometimes you're like oh that's actually an even better idea the curveballs you're throwing actually open up new doors that's always exciting so you know I was scared because first of all I had to be on the water at certain points um, just to scout the rivers and things like that and I like I said, I don't like water, especially when the water is trying to throw you off the raft. Yeah. But we actually, the biggest boon to us shooting in Eastern Europe, um, and especially in Bosnia, we shot in a town called Biash. And it was on the Una River, which is still to this day, I mean, I guess it hasn't been that long, but in my <laughs> life, uh, the most beautiful river I've ever seen in my life. There's some incredible rapids, that huge uh, waterfall sequence that, you know, if you've seen the movie, that's sort of the climax of the movie. Yeah. Uh, that exists there, though we enhanced it a little bit in post. Uh, but it is, it's perilous, man. It's crazy like that to think about going over that thing. And then we meet these guys that take people on tours of this river day in, day out. They are, you know, they're river guides, but they're also kind of stuntmen in their own right because they just know the river so well. They would do things that some of the stuntmen were even like, they had to like kind of show them like you have to jump. Let me show you where you land. Like if you go that way, you break your legs. If you go that way, you hit your head. Like you got to jump here and just there. And they would practice it, you know, at different varying levels for weeks without us while we were off, you know, talking about set design and finding other locations. And these guys were just fully dedicated to making that stuff awesome. And I owe so much of the movie to those river guides. They really made it happen, man, because it's like you have to know that's the thing about river, about any body of water, obviously, but a, a white water river with like cat four rapids, cat five rapids. You really you got to have people that know it like the back of their hand. Yeah, like yeah. Even the greatest stuntman, like the most experienced stuntman there is goes into this situation blind and could get sucked under a, you know, get sucked under a yeah, rock. Exactly. You, know yeah, you don't, you don't know because you can't look at, at, at whitewater rapids and know what the rocks are looking like underneath that or what direction you're going to get pulled under there. You know, to me, that was kind of what, one of the things that made the movie like such a nail biter for me was, were, were those sequences because it's like, you can't really fake a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I want, I really wanted to try to capture that too, just the power of the water. Cause it's, it's, you take it for granted when you're watching it on screen. I, I fear like it's not until you're actually standing in it or on a raft getting sucked through it that you're like, there is no, this thing's way, this thing's way stronger than me, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> anything could happen right now. So I, I wanted to get close to it. I wanted to get intimate with it, uh, with the, with the camera, you know? Um, so we, we used a combination of having those guys train our stuntmen to do all of the sort of stuff in, in wides and even close, if it was, you know, over the shoulder, trying to, you know, do as much as we could on the raft as well, even with stunts just to keep it 
intimate and feeling very real. And then we had this, we had the luxury of this incredible kayak training facility in Slovakia and Liptovsky Mikulaš, tiny town, the one I mentioned before near the border of Poland, lovely little town in Slovakia. They have, this is a, a, a training slalom that you know, Olympic kayakers from all over Europe go to train and they can turn the water higher. They can turn it lower. Uh, they can turn it off, uh, you know, so they can turn it off. They turn it off for us and we can light it and we can dress it and everything. And they're like, let the water go. And suddenly we have whitewater rapids, but you put actors in there and it looks fucking crazy. It looks perilous. But if you fall out of the boat, you could stand up and you're like in, you know, it's up to your knees if even, you know, so it's like, yeah. It's really, um, it's still dangerous. You got to wear a helmet and all that stuff. You could hit your head on that, on the side, on a rock or whatever. But like, it was such a great tool to have because we didn't have to spend the money. We didn't have the money to build a tank the way that a big movie would. Yeah. So the fact that this just happened to be there within striking distance of our home base. How much stuff did you shoot there? So we shot that night sequence. And then we did a couple of days, a day. Uh, we had two other days there where we shot all of the, like anytime you see an actor's face on a raft and there's whitewater rapids around them, it was usually we, we did it there. Or if you see all five of them on the raft or a couple of them on the raft going over rapids and kind of a medium close, we did it there. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really cool. So that was why, I mean, all the water work we had to storyboard. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let's go back a little bit, because like my awareness of your work kind of starts with working for you about 10 years ago, but you, you'd done a lot of other stuff before that. So let, let's go way back. Let's go way back. What got you into filmmaking in the first place? I guess the, the, the short version is I've always wanted to make movies. I know it's cliche, but like I, I don't remember wanting to do anything else. And never has mm-hmm. there been a moment where I was like, maybe I won't do this. From like fifth grade, I was using my dad's home video camera to make movies with my friends. I think they had fun with it, but also I, I owe them a lot still uh, for, for giving up their time. to. Act. Do you still have, do you still have those films? Do you still have them somewhere? I do locked away. I do. <laughs> but that was just sort of like, I don't know, that was like the summer hobby. And then, uh, you know, I went to, co- I went to like a normal college experience. I went to university of Michigan just to get like a normal person degree, but you know, did the film program there and, and that it just never stopped. You know, it was like, every time I tried to do something normal, all I wanted to really be doing was making movies, you know? And so like pretty much right after I graduated college, I moved out to LA. And then the funny thing is you get here and you're like, okay, I have a little bit of money in the bank. What do I do now? <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have your friends with you to help you make movies. Yeah. Uh, you're, you suddenly you're paying about eight times the rent. Uh, you don't have a job. And so, yeah, then it was just kind of, I, I got really lucky to get hooked up with uh, Sam Raimi and his production company, Ghost House Pictures. And that was really, I think my life raft. That was sort of what kept me. How, how, did, how did that come about? So Sam grew up in the same vicinity, like one town over from where I grew up. And my mom had a bakery in that vicinity. And Sam's mom used to go into her bakery and get stuff in the morning and they knew each other. And so my mom being who she is, you know, would talk her ear off about how I want to be a filmmaker. When Ben moves to LA, I need to get Sam's number from you. And <laughs> just didn't let off, you know, so I get, I get my sort of like never say die attitude, I think from my mom for sure. <laughs> like, like, and, and, and that's how the career started. Cause she was like the, the day I moved out here, she was like, Hey, I need that number. Give me, <laughs> she like, wow. Her. And so finally she gave, she gave my mom his assistance number and I called his assistant. And then finally he brought me in while he was working on, he was finishing up Spider-Man two and getting ready to prep Spider-Man three. 
and brought me in for like an internship on the Sony lot until like five days in, they found out that I wasn't in college anymore. And they were like, you can't legally be here. Oh no. <laughs> so they sent me over to uh ghost house pictures where I had kind of like a part-time job, just barely making any money. I had to, I was like waiting, I would leave there and then go wait tables in Malibu for like a couple of years. And that was, oh, I was wow. just doing, I was just burning the candle at both ends and living the dream, man. It was, it was, I loved it. It was so much fun because I was learning everything that I could have never learned in school or, or anywhere, just getting to be a fly on the wall and watch movies get put together, watch cuts come in and see how producers react to them, watch drafts come in. And, and even, and Sam was so great. And everybody that worked for him was so great about nurturing that learning experience for me because they knew that I was hungry to, to learn and hungry to try to make a career for myself. And they, they were really respectful of that. And they would like, I'd be like 24 and they would like, let me come in to like a development meeting and just oh, listen, wow. you know, and then sometimes like afterwards ask me, like, do you have any thoughts and things like that? So I really got to be just, I, I had a job there that uh, wasn't very important, but it was really, they were keeping me around kind of as a fly on the wall and then uh, gave me my first movie once they felt I was ready. And then it was off. I was off to the races from there. And that's a big deal. It was 30 Days of Night, Dark Days. That was uh, a sequel to a, a pretty successful uh, theatrical movie. Yeah. But as I was saying before, it's it's the, the mistake that I never wanted to make again, which is following up a really, what I thought was a really strong movie that had a, you know, a decent budget and a big uh, studio marketing team behind it. And then making a sequel with a different cast and a lower, much lower budget. And I was really arrogant at the time. I'll, I'll say that because... Um, I thought for some reason I could like take, you know, they made the first one for like 30, 35 mil. I got four, I think for, to make mine. Oh, wow. And I made it arguably in scope, a bigger movie. Like it takes place in lots of different places. Not just, not just a, a town in Alaska. And arrogantly, it was just like, I'm going to figure out, I'm scrappy, man. I'm, I'm going to figure out a way to do this and make it better than the first one. And about halfway through the shoot, I was like, I, I fucked up. This was a bad idea. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, but that was a great learning experience, you know? And uh, I met a lot of wonderful people, people I'm still friends with to this day. I had, I had a really great cast and crew. Uh, we shot in Vancouver. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. It was, it was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Some of the hardest times I've ever had in my life, but what I learned from it, I can't, you know, it's film school. I felt like I, I'm like, I'm getting paid to go to film school. Just please, you know, don't judge me by my first movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it's kind of a common story, I think, where, you know, sort of an impossible task is handed to not even a first-time director it could be a director at any point in their career. And I think a lot of people will look at it and be like, eh, we'll figure it out. You know, oh, we only have three weeks of prep. Yeah, we'll fit, you know, it'll suck, but we'll get it done. And the truth is, you know, failure is an option. Like sometimes you can't get it done and the expectations are too high for, for what you have. The fact that, that you even got to make the movie, I, I think it speaks a lot to how good you are, what you do, even back then when that was your first big movie. Yeah. I mean, it was, I think it spoke, it spoke to my, well, I, I think just to my blind, my, my blind arrogance, my blind <laughs> of just like, cause you don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, yeah. And, and the reason I think I still think back on chosen so fondly is like, I didn't know anything. And after dark days, I was, I was actually kind of disillusioned. Cause I was like, fuck man, this is, you can't just like, can't just scrap it through this, these situations, you know, you gotta, you gotta get put in the right situation. Yeah. Frozen was the complete opposite of the right situation because we had even less money 
but we had no expectations, right? Like Crackle was just kind of coming to be, if you fail, nobody's going to know. And if you succeed, great bonus, you know, but somebody was giving me the opportunity to tell a story that I thought was really fun and do it the way I wanted to. And like I said, when you don't have a lot of resources, you also don't have a lot of people standing behind you. You get to play. And on Chosen, I really got to play. And I think I was in a place after 30 Days of Night where I was like, I don't want to say disillusioned, but I was like, I was literally in like a fuck it kind of place. You know, I was like, you know what, this is, <laughs> I got to just do it the way I, I know how to do it. And fuck yeah, it. Yeah. And then I met Tim, our cinematographer, and he had the same fucking attitude. And we just kind of, he put together a crew of fuck it people where it was just like, and really what I mean by fuck it, it means let's go have fun. You know, forget about all the, it should be fun. Yeah. Forget about all the pressure and expectations and what is, how is it going to be received? Just go have fun. You know, let's be kids again. And that's, uh, it should be like that. That's how it should be. Well, cool. I feel like I've taken a, a whole lot of your time. I'll talk. I'll talk for another hour if you want, man. I love. <laughs> same here. Same here. Uh, before we go, though, if people want to obviously check out your work, they can see the River Wild currently on Netflix. Uh, chosen on Crackle. I don't. I think I saw Beneath on Amazon. I don't know where it is now. Yeah, um, it's a, I think it's a just a rent a rental on I think VOD anywhere pretty much like Amazon Google Play I should have I should have made a list of these things so I could pimp myself I'm really bad at that <laughs> but uh, clearly better than me but yeah but go uh, <laughs> well you could go watch startup on Amazon do you could do that uh, but River Wild on Netflix right now that's that's the thing the fresh thing so uh, you know if you're listening to us uh, please go check out River Wild on uh, Netflix right now I, I think it's it's awesome it looks awesome and uh, Ben it's it's uh, it's great to talk to you man yeah you too man I really appreciate you having me on I, I think and also again congratulations I know I told you over text but congratulations on what you've built here it's it's amazing like to start a podcast and, and grow an audience this way over the years is, I, I don't know how you've done it it's really cool So that was Ben Kitai. Hey, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank, uh, thank you so much, Ben. I, it was just great talking to Ben. He's just uh, the, the coolest, smartest. I love his stories. Wow. All right. And now, short ends. Well, Ben, uh, it's our short end time of the show. It's where we talk about our obsession of the week. It could be anything across the entertainment mm. or intellectual spectrum. It could be anything. You have a... You have a <laughs> You got you got something you're you're into? Yeah, yeah. I, what ends up happening, and this happened when I saw Talk to Me recently, is sort of like horror Twitter. It's not just Twitter, but Blue Sky Threads. Horror Twitter. Oh, oh, it's a thing, man. Oh, okay. It's a thing. Mutant fam. Hmm. Uh, there, there's a bunch of us out there. Uh, lit up about a movie that had dropped on uh, Hulu hmm. that I hadn't really heard of. And this is, is sort of like my, uh, I, it's the same praise and gripe that I've been doing lately, which is, I love this movie. It's called No One Will Save You. Hmm. It's so good. Hmm. It is an alien invasion movie. I think that there is one word of dialogue in the entire movie. It is without dialogue. So well done. It stars Caitlin Deaver, who's captivating and amazing. And basically, it's her in a small town. She's kind of living a little bit uh, of an isolated life. And in her uh, house, there's what you think is a home invasion. And then you realize it's aliens. Hmm. And it is so freaking well done it's just brilliantly done it looks great i i should shout out to uh the director brian duffield and the cinematographer aaron morton 
And I think it must have been made in Australia or whatever, because everybody seems to be either Australian or New Zealander. There's like a lot of crossover with like a Xena warrior princess. Hmm. But anyway, looks great. It's so well done. And actually a couple of the script pages were put on Twitter and I should show them to you because I've never seen a script page that looks like this. Hmm. It's, I think that as writers, we're getting bored with the screenplay format and I'm seeing a lot of people mess with it. And this is the most intense messing with the screenplay format I've ever seen. I could probably uh, link to it if you want, and we can put it in the show notes. I think that'd be great. I think there might be some people who want to check that out. So yeah. absolutely. Well, it, it's we'll... really cool. But but anyway, yeah, it's on Hulu. It premiered this week. And so my gripe is, like my gripe has been a lot lately. I saw this movie and I'm like, I really enjoyed watching this on Hulu. God damn it. I wanted to, I wish I could have seen this in a movie theater. Yeah. This I... movie needed to be in a theater. I feel like this movie would have done well. And we're in an environment right now where a lot of, like, Talk to Me did really well. No internationally known stars, you know, an Australian cast in that one. Smile, Megan, you know, over the last few years, movies that are like really good, taut, horror, thrillery kind of movies have been doing really well theatrically. Hmm. And I wish Hulu would just put this out in freaking theaters and promote it a little bit. I feel like it would fill that space well. And I think it, it could build a bigger audience. And then when you drop it on Hulu, more people will watch it on Hulu. I understand that's maybe not their business model. But I feel like movies like this and Prey, and there's plenty of others. Should be. Should be their business model. Go to Hulu. I don't know if it's still up today, but as of yesterday when I watched it, it was the splash page of Hulu. It was the first movie there. So, like, they're definitely pointing you to to this movie. But, you know, God damn it, I just want to see this on a bigger screen. It looked it looked so great. You'd be more immersed in it because yeah. you would be in the theatrical experience, which it's hard to argue that the, the you know, the flat panel at home is exactly the same as going to the theater. I know. Like, uh, j- just today, actually, uh, we took uh, my son to see Labyrinth at, at Vidiot's. Mm-hmm. And Vidiot's is one of the reasons why L- L.A., there's so many great reasons if you're a film lover, L.A. is just the best place ever to be. And Vidiot's, which is the best video store or one of the best video stores, I'd say that, and Cinephile are the two greatest video stores in town. But Vidiot's recently in uh, Highland Park opened up a beautiful cinema. Yeah, oh, yeah. And it's it's great, great seats, big screen, big, beautiful screen, great sound. And uh, we saw Labyrinth. And like I had seen, I'm old enough that I saw Labyrinth when it came out in theaters the first time. It was crazy to see it because, you know, like it's, I'm sure, off of a DCP. Mm-hmm. But it looked for all the world, you know, like it, it, it had the character of the film. And I just think it's pretty fun seeing Jennifer Connelly as a teenager too. And David Bowie, and and David his, Bowie, yes, and his, prime, his prime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, not to get off on a tangent there, but, but I just feel like the theatrical experience is just, and my son, you know, who's five now was just sitting there freaking captivated. And you know, we, we don't take him to movies constantly, but we take him to movies from time to time. Oppenheimer. Take him up. Yeah. yeah. He, he can't get enough of the, of the oppie. He's all into, he's all, he, it was he, the thing thing is my my son's kind of a snob and he insisted on seeing it in IMAX yeah yeah I know it's tough to do yeah yeah, yeah. He's five-year-old like, $27 ticket yeah and he's like no man 70 millimeters not good enough I need IMAX <laughs> anyway again yeah, no one will save you it's on Hulu freaking awesome I'll check it out check it out yeah all right so Ilya what is your pet obsession of this week all right it, it also involves aliens but it is aliens for the small screen. All right. And this uh, was also for the small screen. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I guess that's true. But well, we were, you were talking about the theatrical experience. I and wish it was yes, you. Exactly. Okay, so, whatever aliens you're about to talk about, I want to see them on the big screen. Okay. Anyway. So these aliens uh, usually tend to be a little bit campy, a little bit cheesy, but uh, still beloved. 
Uh, I'm talking about Doctor Who. Doctor Who is coming back. Oh, I take it back. I don't want to see that on the big screen. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny because uh, the trailer just dropped yesterday on YouTube for this 60th anniversary special, which is going to be a, oh a run God. of three episodes. Can you believe 60th anniversary? Is this the longest running narrative TV series in the world it's gotta I, be it's probably close that or maybe some sort of soap opera i don't know which soap operas might be running that long but yeah there, there's there's a couple i know that are i mean yeah i can't imagine it's 60 years i mean like even the simpsons has only been on for like 35 years well doctor who's never been continuous they've taken breaks they've kind of disappeared and come back so it, uh, it's probably some creative math of how they get to 60th anniversary i mean maybe 60 years have passed yeah. but it's not like there's been a new doctor who every single year every single time you know, with this, it is, uh, you know, it is a anniversary special. But regardless, the big news is about Doctor Who is that mm. David Tennant is back. And there's a lot of people out there. David Tennant is their doctor. It doesn't matter that there's been all these others. He is the guy. I know our show producer, Alana Cody, is a huge David Tennant fan and particularly David Tennant as Doctor Who. Hmm. Uh, she has said many times that he is her doctor. So, uh, yeah, I, I know that there are people out there that it's a big deal. That he's back. Catherine Tate is back and playing the heavy, playing the bad guy this time. Someone who is always fantastic. Neil Patrick Harris. So Neil Patrick oh Harris God. is coming into the series. Neil Patrick Harris is playing the bad guy on Doctor Who. He is, and uh, it, oh, it that's sh- that's cool. It should it should be quite entertaining. I'm not the world's biggest Doctor Who fan, but that does sound pretty enticing. It, Neil Patrick Harris. He uh, he doesn't go halfway. He's uh, yeah. He's going to go full Who. In I was, this, I was I'm sure. recently re- reminded of the project he did years ago. It was a web series called Doctor Horrible Sing Along Blog. Classic. I yeah. think that that was the moment where I was like, Neil Patrick Harris is kind of a genius. He's really, uh, really clever, very talented. He's a magician. He was the president of the Academy of Magical Arts, which, of course, Whoa. is the, uh, the the Magic Castle Society. He is uh, he's quite the uh, the multi hyphenate of, of talent. The he's guy been sings, pretty busy he dances. Since the yeah. Doogie Howser days. He's, he sure he's kept has. It going. Yeah, he really has. And Harold and Kumar probably the the best cameo of I think I, I've ever I've ever seen of for of, sure. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Anyway, so uh, Doctor Who. I don't know exactly when it comes out, but the new trailer has already has a million views. It's been out for one day on YouTube. Uh, you can check it out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes we'll over at camnoir.com. Excellent. So, Ben, where can people find you? They want to track you down. Uh, the best place to find me is benrock.com. Just go to benrock.com. You can find all my socials. You can uh, check out my reel if you want. You know, re- read my bio. I don't, I don't care if you read my bio. <laughs> yeah. How about yourself, Ilya? Where can people find you? As of right now, in this moment, we're both at Hot Rod Cameras. We are. We're sitting yep. in the same room together. I uh, feel like it's so much better when we're sitting in the same room together. It is. I feel like there's no weird pauses between us. There's no weird Zoom sort yeah. of delays. It's like, you know. Zoom, Zoom is a blessing. I mean, Zoom is awesome. And I still, to this day, I'm like, how did Skype lose that? But yeah, no, nothing like being in person. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. So uh, you can find me at com. Ben, who should we thank? Who made this show possible? As always, Alana Cody. Number one, uh, Alana Cody set up that awesome interview with Ben Keetai and several interviews that we have coming up. So uh, applause, applause to Alana Cody. Yay. And then uh, and then Ben Katz, who's our editor. Uh, it occurred to me that we had Ben editing Ben a conversation between Ben and Ben this week. Not confusing at all. Three, Not, three Bens. Three Bens, no waiting. <laughs> and last but never least, uh, let's thank uh, Kay Zalek-Trakchi, who created every scrap of music that you heard in this entire podcast. And uh, you should go to his website, musicbykays.com. Check out his music. But also, if you need uh, color correction, uh, visual effects, or someone to direct your next music video, for God's sakes, 
You could do worse than K's. He's awesome. He's he is the most multi-hyphenate person I think I know. Yeah, super talented that guy. Yeah, in your face, James Cameron. <laughs> All right, Ben. I think that's just about gonna do it for us. You want to take us out? Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.